This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to Indie Beat. We're on the Playlist Podcast Network. Don't forget that. My name is Christopher Jason Bell, and like it or not, I'm your host. This podcast focuses on indie filmmakers, critics, programmers, you know, the good stuff. Today, I believe we have our first critic on the show, so open up those ears and get ready to listen. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm here with Jordane Searles. Hello. How are you? Good. Jordane is a film critic, and she also writes uh, screenplays, television, scripts, the whole shebang. And we're going to talk about all of it. Um, Not but all of it, okay. <laughs> uh, just to start off and give a little background for our healthy audience, our, our vibrant audience, um, how did you get into film? Well, I've been into it for a really long time. I watched a lot when I was young, you know, watched a lot of things and um, I'm putting on sunglasses. Um, <laughs> um, and when I was, yeah, there were, there were some film classes in high school. So I took two of those. There were two film electives. So that was really lucky. And it was really interesting because I had spent a lot of time like watching a lot of films and like studying IMDb and reading about films. So when I was in class, everybody kind of felt that I was kind of obnoxious for knowing things. And I remember this like very vividly. I got like one detail wrong about The Deer Hunter, which is a movie that I had not seen. I just knew details about it. I got one detail wrong, this movie that I had not seen. And all of the guys in the class were so excited that I'd gotten something wrong that they like clapped. <laughs> Scumbags. Who's clapping now? Who's clapping now, right? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of them are still, like, in my hometown, and I'm not there anymore, so I'm fine. Yeah, fuck them. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I studied it then, too, and uh, I watched a lot of Turner Classic movies growing up. I actually miss it, like, not having cable, which is, like, adulthood kind of, like, being able to pay for cable is, like, uh... I don't know. I feel like that's for people that have like a job job, like cable cable. Like I haven't had it in a while, so I miss Turner Classic Movies. Um, but yeah, I was really into them. And then I went to school and I was going and I was studying to be an English teacher. And then halfway through, I changed my mind and I changed my major to film and I made English my minor. Um so that was really great, and then I had some really great professors who were really encouraging and encouraged me to go to another school for grad school and continue my film education, and so I went to NYU, um, their grad program at Tisch, and I studied dramatic writing, and so that's how I got to New York. I'm from originally from Georgia, and I don't, yeah, and... I don't go back to Georgia for the most part. Although I heard they're kind of like building their film industry a little bit, but it seems mostly like production stuff and I do writing. So it's still not a great place for me to be. Yeah. Like not great for movie going and stuff like that. Yeah. Not a lot of, not a lot of good theaters. Like I noticed that there's some good theaters in Athens, which is actually a part of Georgia that I've spent very little time in. I went once to, see Laverne Cox speak and that was definitely the one really good time to go but I hadn't really been and I hear that SCAD is kind of cool but like SCAD didn't offer enough money and they didn't offer as much money like in their grad program as NYU did which I found to be really strange because it's like yeah. it's like it's right there but I actually got a better deal going to New York and better is relative. I'm still in like a lot of debt, but I feel like I'd be in a ton of debt if I had gone to SCAD and I'd still be in Georgia. So I just, <laughs> just yeah, I'd rather not. not. How do you like New York? Uh, like, are you, how cinephile are you? You're going to see movies all the time in New York and stuff? Yeah. I mean, I've been like stressed lately, so not as much as usual, but like, uh, 
yeah, I see films a lot. I usually, in the best case scenario, I try to see a film a week. I have one of those like AMC Stubbs A-list membership things where you can theoretically see three movies a week. I never do that because most of them are like, the big budget stuff that I have to like, kind of make myself care. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of them at home too. And I do my bad, my podcast, the bad romance podcast with my um, friend Bronwyn. Um, and we do, so we talk about a bad romantic film a week. So I see at least one bad romantic movie a week. Yeah. <laughs> also. Are you looking for bad ones or do you just like, we have a really long list, but we're also like we're also on the lookout. Like sometimes it's really obvious ones. Sometimes it's ones that we have to dig for. Like for Halloween, we specifically were looking for bad ones that had like supernatural aspects and stuff like that. So that was fun. Um, and sometimes um, my my boyfriend co-hosts, and he can only really do an episode unless the romance has a gimmick. So that has led to us finding some really interesting ones that are also tend to be supernatural or have to do with magic or science or something like that. What made you guys want to do that specific kind of podcast? Oh, it's just something that I've always wanted to do. I love rom-coms and I, well, we also do romantic dramas too, but yeah, I love romances and I feel like they're not really given the rigor that they deserve in terms of the way that they're talked about by a lot of critics and not just white male critics though they kind of suck at talking about it but like critics in general are really bad at talking about romances and i think it's because i of course the model is changing but you know in a lot of these jobs you have to basically watch everything so if romances aren't your thing you're going to come at it like you're annoyed every single time and i think a lot of people that write about romances come from a place of being irritated with them immediately and I'm not, Bronwyn's not, so we're a little bit more fair, I think, in the way that we talk about them. Yeah, you're trying to tip the scale. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's how I feel about, uh, I'm really into slow cinema, and I feel like there's not a lot of critics who are. So if they even review them, I do think they come in at, like, a negative kind of thing. Or, like, they all say the same thing. They're just, like, they have, like, the, um, it's kind of like a form kind of review, you know, where it's like, this one's difficult or something. And it's just like, I would rather, you know, I'm not looking for like positive reviews or assessments across the board, but I would like something where it's like, I feel like I'm reading um, something Slow personal and different. Cinema. Slow cinema. Slow cinema. Yeah, like um, stuff that what you would say would be like uh, Chantel Ackerman's stuff is similar is like in vain of that or you know even Tarkovsky or Ah okay. Yeah, just basically very, you know, long takes, sometimes not a lot of camera movement. Uh there's more to it, but those are like, you know, the big uh the big attributes that they have. Um you know, and very easy to hate because uh they're minimalistic. There's you know, quote unquote not a lot going on, but um in terms of like obvious stimulation it's not really there so i do get it but on the other hand i feel like if you're watching something and you are set to like review it or whatever you should take it on its own terms and um yeah that was something kind of i want i had that question like deeper into my written questions but we made it here already so um yeah so we're talking about things that aren't uh kind of given a fair shot like people are coming in with like uh negative perceptions or something. Um, and I would I would find that a lot. I would find people kind of going into a film without uh, kind of... They, they would come in with their own biases and they wouldn't take a film on its own terms. How did you get started on uh, writing criticism? So you wanted to do it. You like movies. You wanted to do it. Um, what was your first step there? Uh, I mean, I had, uh, I had graduated, I'd, I'd gotten my master's and, um, I wanted to write some reviews. I can't remember why. And I, I got an inkling that it, that it was complicated and I got nervous. And basically I just, I started Fishnet Cinema, which is like my little blog because I was like, okay, 
here's a place where I can figure out how to talk about movies and kind of like explain myself, but it's a space where it's very, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Low stakes, low stakes. So yeah, I started doing that and I was, and at the time I was still um, trying to do theater fellowships because I was really going hard into the whole playwright thing and it wasn't really, (sighs) I feel like (laughs) being a playwright is probably one of the toughest things. It's one of those things where, uh... It almost feels like you have to have a job to be able to do it, which means, I mean, which is like the case for like a lot of things, but I was trying to make it as a playwright. I was writing these reviews and I was just like, oh, I could probably get paid (laughs) to write these if I wrote them a little bit better. Um, And just like an editor or like it happened where editors were reaching out to me to write about things. It wasn't specifically about movies. Um, an editor for paste magazines, comedy section reached out to me, uh, to write about, um, Dave Chappelle. And that was like one of my earliest things that I wrote for money for an actual print publication was just like a criticism of Dave Chappelle's comedy. And then another editor reached out to me to talk about lemonade. Um, And so I decided to talk about it as a film, which is a lot of what I consider um, Beyonce's Lemonade to be a narrative. And I talked about um, its legacy in Southern Black film, and I talked about Eve's Bayou, and I talked about Daughters of the Dust, and it was just an opportunity for me to uh, talk about the artistic relevance of Beyonce's cinematic work and to talk about it as actual work and not something that someone did for her because I think that it's it'd be like oh all of her work is made by committee it's like so are most things mm-hmm. so are films yeah I mean you have like the auteur theory you know so it's like one person did it and it's like well what about you know the DP the writer the actors like the actors are front and center you know like it's you know, we got to get away from that a little bit. Yeah, it, film is a collaborative effort, and I think that Lemonade is a film, and I think that giving Beyonce credit does not take away the credit from anyone that she collaborated with, but I also doesn't, like, just because she collaborated doesn't mean that she didn't do it. And especially, like, in the in the film, there's the poetry from Morrison Shire, who is a really, really great poet, actually, of some of her books. But just hearing the poetry in the film Lemonade made me seek out Worsen Shire and made a lot of people seek out Worsen Shire. And she cites Worsen Shire. Like, Beyonce never said, oh, this is the poetry that I wrote. Like, you know, so it was it was, it was was a great experience. Actually, somebody wrote something really great, um, a Lemonade syllabus that had a list of all of the artistic influences and all the people that had to do with it. And it was just like a plethora of so much black and southern work and I thought it was really beautiful and I think that is kind of what made me think okay I wrote this piece and I don't hate it I think I could do this I could do more of this and um just like a lot of but I still did a lot of like puttering around I was a postmate for a little bit (laughs) I have terrible things to say about being a postmate it's the worst um and a whole bunch of, like, menial jobs and stuff like that. And uh, I I feel like I get really, which, which is weird to say, because I feel like I've been doing this for a little bit now, that it didn't really feel like it started until Bitch Media, I, I got my fellowship at Bitch Media, where I felt like I really got the mentorship that I needed to be legitimate. I mean, maybe I was legitimate before, but it didn't really feel like it. You know, it it was nice to have a publication be like, we recognize you and we support you. It's a little better than, you know, kind of like lonely blogging, especially when I was just like writing on Fishnet and I wasn't getting paid for my work because, of course, I was working for myself, but I was still getting hate mail. And I was just like, you know, I'd rather like get a paycheck if I'm going to be getting hate mail. Like, yeah. people get hate mail when they work for the Times. They still work for the Times, though. Do you want to talk about that? That's, like, interesting to me. Like, what did people hate? 
I mean, my work and myself, I, I talk a lot about, you know, feminism and women and race and stuff when I talk about film. And there were a I few, there were a few things that I wrote that people did not like. One of which is not online anymore, but I didn't take it down because people didn't like it. I took it down because I realized that I didn't, I wasn't happy with the writing and I would love to write it again, you know, knowing what I know now about structure. Um, but one of them was, um, I wrote about a season of Archer, the season of Archer that's basically trying to do, uh, Sunset Boulevard. And I talked about like how I felt like the racism on Archer went from being kind of like a thing that everyone was aware of to something that went really out of control in that season. And I just, I just wrote about how mean it was and how strange it was and how it was a whole plot about Archer deserting his black baby mama for some white woman that he barely knows. And then, and then Lana getting arrested and Archer like laughing at her while she's in jail. And I was just like, I don't, I feel at some point we forgot that this was supposed to be funny because I don't think there's anything funny about watching Lana in an orange jumpsuit and she essentially gets arrested by like another black cop for having an attitude, which is very confusing. It was very confusing to watch. It was very weird. So I wrote an essay about that and people didn't like that. They were just like, oh, no, Archer's really woke and Archer knows what it's doing. And I was like, no, I mean, Archer's had several seasons. That means that the writing can deteriorate and it did and that was my argument but people were mad about it but people got way madder when I talked about Logan like talking my piece on Logan people got way more angry about it and that piece is still online I haven't taken that one down because as much as I don't like the writing on that piece either I still like my points (laughs) yeah I mean that's how I found you that was uh you know one of the reasons why I was like wow I need to I need to talk to her about this um and since you brought it up, we can go right there unless uh, – did I cut you off? I'm sorry. Oh, no. No, you didn't cut me off. Okay. Yeah, I mean I kind of figured uh, when you said hate mails, like is it going to be like the obvious stuff? Like all the stuff you said that you write about plus fan culture, it's like of course. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really uh, the, the obvious stuff. Yeah, it was the Logan stuff. It was really interesting. I don't really um, – have averse reactions to films very much. I'm pretty, have a pretty strong stomach. I'm really only afraid of one movie and it's Gremlins. And that's because I was scarred as a child. Um, but, uh, yeah, Logan was one of those movies where I, of course made it through cause I don't walk out of movies. That's not something that I do. I made it through. And then the moment that it was, it was over, I needed to, walk outside and just like chill and it was really weird because like the people that i saw it with were concerned and i was just they were just like because you know everybody's just like oh this is like a fun like it's a comic book movie it's all fine like it's fine and i just i can admit and i think it was like a culmination of how I was feeling at the time like how i was reacting to the news but also how i think that uh, Hollywood has this habit of doing things where they do, they'll add characters that are black or of uh, other people of color, and then they'll just like put them in these like random places and not really think about where they're putting them and not really think about what it means. It's it's very weird, and I remember and a lot of the hate mail that people sent me about it was just like oh, but the family was depicted as good people. And so why are you angry? Because they're depicted as good people. They're not depicted as stereotypes. And I was like, well, number one, I mean, being a, it has nothing to do with whether or not they're good people. Like the people who pay, who played like maids and stuff in old Hollywood movies, those were also good people. Like they weren't bad. Um, it's not about like how like morally they're represented. It's just the fact that we were introduced an entire black family so that we could watch them be slaughtered. And I just didn't see why it needed to happen. And I mean, I probably would feel differently about it if it wasn't from a franchise that is really, really bad on race from the weird casting of Storm, which, like, 
they have never fixed um, to everything that they've done. I find the entire X-Men series to be really strange racially and really kind of like thoughtless in the way that it does things. And so I personally, and when people argued with me, I would say this over and over again, I would personally just be fine if they were white. Like it's, it's weird. And they would just be like, Oh, well, do you want just like less black people in movies? I was just like, no, this particular movie, I just kind of, they could have just been white. There's just no reason for them to be black. It just doesn't make sense. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. And I notice it over and over and over again, like in X-Men First Class, um, uh, I noticed that there were, I'm so bad at this because I just haven't seen it in forever, but one black X-Men dies, I think we watch him like deteriorate or something, and then the one that's played by Zoe Kravitz like turns evil for reasons unknown to me, um, <laughs> just for no reason. I don't know. I I find X-Men to be really sloppy in general. I find it to be a sloppy cinematic universe. I kind of hate it. <laughs> now that I think about it, now that I'm really breaking it down. What's the Storm thing? Huh? You you mentioned Storm, like uh, casting and stuff. What's... Storm is supposed to be... Storm was originally a dark-skinned character, and I think in casting Halle Berry, I think a lot of people have said it's been a it's been an angry um, black comic book nerd cry since the beginning of forever that it should have been Angela Bassett. What I heard recently is that Angela Bassett just was not available at the time of casting of Storm, but the fact that Angela Bassett wasn't available, so you picked Halle Berry, just seems weird to me. I mean... I love Halle Berry as in in other roles. She's bad as Storm. Not only is she just like not dark like Storm is supposed to be, but she's actually bad as Storm. Like she's written bad. She's not suited for the part. It's really weird. And I know that Storm is light skinned in some of the comics now, but that's because of Halle Berry. She <laughs> she was retconned light skinned because of Halle Berry. That's not good. <laughs> gotcha. Um, to go back to Logan. Uh, so, all right. I did not watch the whole movie of Logan. I am not. I'm more into superhero movies, like into into them now than I was when this was like available to watch. But I still like. You know, it's not my first thing to watch, and it's how I treated Logan was like. All right. I'm going to get stoned tonight and put on something. So I, I put that on. Yeah. I put that on. And, um, and what a, what a movie to put on, like when you're stoned, because like the first scene, one of the first, uh, it's like the first action scene of the movie. It's Wolverine. And, um, I guess he's drunk or something. I forget what happens. I don't remember the context, but I remember the first thing is like, he's beating up this group and th- this group of people and they're all Mexican and I is he in Mexico? I don't remember, but it's just so vicious, and it really caught me off guard. It's just like this is the first thing you're doing, and I again, I don't know if you remember the movie. There's yeah, no, there's a lot of that in the movie, and also there's a. It's interesting too because I I want to point out that I am in the minority in terms of like how people feel about Logan. Most black, most other black people that I know love Logan and consider everything that happens in it commentary. Um, I don't think that it's smart enough for that personally. And it's not just that, but it's also um, all of the um, the young, the young um, little the little X Men, little X Men crew that he finds that he has to protect. They're a bunch of brown children. Um, brown and black children that were all basically experimented on. And I get it that it was, I I think it's supposed to be a commentary on the way that the medical industry takes, um, abuses black and brown bodies for medical experimentation. But this is also a movie called Logan. It is not called poor brown children that got experimented on. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And a good example of how how it could work well is actually in Black Lightning, which takes on a lot of the same stuff and is 
way better at handling the material because it's about a black man who finds out that the black people in his own community have been experimented on by the government and he was one of them he was one of those children and he is one of the few that you know didn't die or didn't have like the terrible reaction he became a superhero and so it's a person it's like a black man who was experimented on fighting for other black people who were experimented on from his own neighborhood. So it just works better as a story. Does any of this kind of stuff, would any of it work in a movie about Wolverine? Like, does it have a place? For a movie about Wolverine, I'm not sure because I'm not really sure who Wolverine is anymore. I used to know who he was. Mm-hmm. And he... I guess it makes sense that this is gonna that that Logan was the last one for Hugh Jackman because I just think it was supposed to be a passing. I think it was supposed to be a passing the mantle film, so I don't really think there was a lot of thought as to like what is Logan doing here? Why does he have anything to do with this? Kind of, you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm not. I don't. I feel like I don't have the adequate nerd cred for a lot of these things (laughs) sometimes like I'm just a person who sees me like I don't know um I sometimes feel unqualified but for Logan I don't know if there was any way to make his ending not messy I don't know if making him a murder for brown children was the best way to do it, but I don't know what could have been done. Because, I mean, the cinematic universe has also not done Jean Grey well either, and his main things are Jean Grey related. And whenever he's not with Jean Grey, he's just going on these weird, like, vision quests where he's with minorities for some reason. Like, the one that he did where he was in... Was was he in Japan? Japan, yeah. Yeah! Yeah, I didn't see that one. Um, but, yeah, again, I don't remember the context of the beginning of the movie. I just remember him killing Mexican people, and this is, like, the first thing we see, and it's, like, random. And it's, like, it felt like the context was that he just, he's wasted, and he, like, kills people, but it's not really, it could be, like, anybody, but it's, like, oh, it's Mexican people. And it and it wasn't like he's wrong for doing it. That's just what I remember. Again, it's foggy, but... I remember your review was, like, one of the only ones I came across that, like, mentioned that, like, hey, this is fucked up, and here's all the other other fucked up things that just felt, like, not thought into, or just, like, if it was supposed to be a commentary against it, it doesn't really work, so it's just this weird kind of vile thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a major Hollywood issue. I mean, I think, I mean, starting with Brian, st- any franchise, I think, starting with Brian Singer is probably not going to be well thought through yeah (laughs) i haven't even seen his new thing either bohemian rhapsody at all i don't know it's wild that he still makes movies that he still gets to make them it's it's kind of amazing that he (laughs) he continues to make them yeah very strange yeah i guess um i read something recently where he's gearing up to do another one it's like okay it's like i'm very tired of him i don't i I get it i I get that maybe they'll never get him because his lawyers are too whatever but i also don't want to see any more work from him either yeah (laughs) yeah it's weird um he sucks He's not that good. Like, why is this a thing? He's not. He's he's really not. I I mean, a lot of it's just, like, in-house stuff. It's like, oh, we know that this director can turn a profit. So we are going to hire this director to do whatever. And even though he abandoned Bohemian Rhapsody, I'm sure that he's still going to get credit for it in some circles with people who don't do research to figure out who actually finished the movie. Not saying that the person who finished the movie is any better, because he probably isn't. Um, (laughs) Anyway, what about things that we like? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I found my question. Uh, Oh, you did? I did, so this might not be stuff we like. Um... But, uh, yeah, so the question I lost earlier, it had to do with um, taking a film on its own terms. And I felt like when I was paying more attention to film criticism, when I was writing it, I was seeing people that were like, 
applying standards to uh, like every film where it was like, you know, it shouldn't, you should take a film as it is, as as opposed to like what you think. Uh, I this actually reminds me of like a really um, bad music review that I read in Pitchfork. Uh, there was um, there's this rap group called City Girls who yeah, yeah. have an album called Period, um, and they mean period as in period end of discussion. But for yeah. some reason, the review in Pitchfork was. I'm upset and disappointed in this album because it's called period and all of the songs aren't about being on your period. And it's the, it's the weirdest thing I've ever read because (laughs) honestly, there's really only one song that even mentions your period. And then the rest of them are about other things. And it's just, it's, it's this weird review where it's just like, I wish that they had used the concept of menstruation more instead of actually talking about the actual content. That's what that, that's what that reminds me of. I think that that's the best example. It's, it's kind of an amazingly wrong review. I kind of love reading it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. That's a bizarre angle. And I've, you know, of course it's on pitchfork. Yeah. So there's, there's stuff like that where it's like, um, you know, maybe someone really loves drama and then they review a comedy, but it's like, they're applying the same standards that they would have for a drama. And it's like, you know, it doesn't really work like that. Um, there's like plot recaps where like an entire review is just like the plot and there's nothing else. And it's like, that's, you know, frustrating to read. And, um, another one I have is, uh, which is, God, you know, this is across the country, I would say, but, like, people giving marks against a film because it's political, which usually means that it's, like, in even the slightest fashion is to the left. You know, it doesn't have to be, like, uh, soapboxy or anything. It's just, like, if they can... If it's not so subtle that you miss it, if they can, like, catch it, uh, it's, like, there's marks against it for, like having that opinion and wanting it to be in the work. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Are there any like things like that, that bug you, uh, in criticism? Well, one, I would like to say that I love, I love this idea of, (laughs) of movies having leftist messages. I love this idea that I feel like the more people say that the more the concept of the left becomes like this gigantic nebulous thing when it, kind of isn't (laughs) that's very weird to me it's like oh it's not totally conservative it must be the left um it's very weird it's very scary um but uh pet peeves uh i have very like micro pet peeves i don't really like it when um critics White critics write about movies with primarily black casts with almost no understanding of any black person in the cast or any of the work that the people behind the film have made and like made it really obvious. And sometimes you can just really just do a cursory search to find it out. But it's like, I don't know, people review movies like black people only exist in the movies that they appear in with white people. That's something that really drives me crazy. And I think it um it bothers me in written. It also bothers me in podcasts. It's very hard for me to listen to a movie podcast where it feels like black people in film don't exist the way that they talk about it or whenever they talk about it, it it you can tell that it's like alien to them that you know, just like a black actor, like anyone from a Tyler Perry movie, or like you can't tell the difference between Regina Hall and Regina King. Um, just like these things where it's like you can do the research for anything else, but there's this idea that like black cinema is not something worth your rigor. That is something that really, and, and it's very obvious to tell when a person writes who has actually done their homework and who's just like scanning IMDb very quickly and not really thinking about it and thinking that that's okay. Do you see that happen like fairly often? (laughs) I do. Yeah. It's very, it's very weird. Um, it's a really, I don't, 
because it's one of those things where if you point it out, people will turn it. Is, is it like a racism conversation? Is this like, this is the left and they're getting angry about men and men? Like, if it's like, oh no, what are white critics going to do? Do you want us all to quit? And it's like, no, I just want you to know things when you talk about them. Like, be aware of things. Be aware. Like, <laughs> Try harder. Just, yeah, like, uh... This is really, I, I hate to be topical, cause, ugh. but uh, like this whole like Rebel Wilson thing that's been unfolding with her new film, um, where she's like, uh, she, she's got a new, Rebel Wilson has a new film where she's trapped in a romantic comedy, I don't remember, is it called Isn't It Romantic? Um, yes, it's called Isn't It Romantic? Uh, she's, like, trapped in a romantic comedy, and she has done some interview or something where she said that she is the first plus-size woman to star in a romantic comedy. Now, that's not true. That's not true. Like, not only is it not true, but it's, like, it's a very... (laughs) It's a very easy thing to look up. And, honestly... If we're going to go back, it's probably it's probably someone from old Hollywood that did it first, like Shelley Winters or something like that. But but of course, the converse. If we're talking about a uh, recent cinema history, you'd probably start with like Hairspray or Baby Cakes. Um, even though Baby Cakes is kind of like horrific and depressing. Um, but so that's still like the '80s, and that's Ricky Lake, but. Basically, the conversation went to a place online where it's like, Queen Latifah exists? Because that's, of course, the first thing that anyone would say. Because, I mean, that's more readily the thing that comes to your mind, at least if you don't, like, pretend that black media doesn't exist, which a lot of people do. Um, And so they brought up Queen Latifah, and they brought up... um, Monique, who in like in the last twenty years have both done it, um, have both um been in romantic comedies. Queen Latifah's been in like three or four romantic comedies, I think, and all pretty recently, starting with Beauty Shop in two thousand five. And so black women were like, "Hey, this isn't true," <laughs> and her response was. She had a weird response where she was just like, it's unclear whether they were plus size during the time of filming or something. And, like, she just said, like, Rebel Wilson, number one, should not be running her own Twitter account. It's very clear that she does because she just said that. I was just like, what do you mean it's unclear? Like, Queen Latifah has been plus size since we've known who she is. She's not. She hasn't changed. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) It's so strange. Um... (laughs) So it, it's that kind of thing where it's like, even though it was probably a white woman who, it's definitely white women who did it first because white women were allowed to be in movies and yeah. do things before we were. But the fact that it just didn't occur to her that Queen Latifah exists and she's been doing it is is kind of what I'm talking about. It's just, these are really easy things to know. I feel like people have to try really hard to miss them. And it's kind of troubling. Well, it's weird to me, like, I don't know, how do you not know Queen Latifah? I don't, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, living it's, single, come on. It, it doesn't make sense. And I think it almost means that what she, I think the implication is that she just doesn't, and I think, but I think that she's like a microcosm of, like, a huge problem where white people just don't think about things that aren't pointed at them at all. When they do, they get upset. I remember I took a guy to see um, Best Man Holiday with me, which is the sequel to The Best Man. Um, And there are jokes in it about, like, a white guy. Just, like, one of the one characters dating a white guy. And they're, like, very mild white guy jokes about, like, you dating, like, white chocolate or whatever. And this guy that I was with was so angry. (laughs) So mad. (laughs) And it was really... It was it was really funny because it made me realize, oh, he's probably never seen a black movie before because this is really mild in number two. Um, like, it also made me think that all of the black jokes that have been in the movies that he likes, he doesn't, it doesn't occur to him to think about how they make me feel. I mean, I'm usually fine with black jokes. I'm fine. Like, if they're funny, 
Um, most of them aren't. Um, if they're funny or they're corny enough for me to be like harmless, fine. But just the fact, just so hurt that he saw a movie with just mostly black people in it. And just one white guy, one really handsome white guy gets a few jokes thrown at him. And it's a huge fucking deal. It's so strange to be like, like what kind of, not to like super knock this guy, but it's like, what do you like if somebody like calls someone who sort of looks like you white chocolate? Like, what's it like to be offended by that? I don't, I don't know what kind of life that is. I really don't. Like, it's really, like, I stopped dating him after that because I was just like, if this, if this bothers you. Yeah, I can't relate to this. I can't relate that but yeah i think I, I think people are very insular in their taste and i think it comes out in their criticism and i yeah. try i mean there are things that i have blind spots of course like i haven't seen a lot of foreign films because of my because of my vision it makes it harder for me to pay attention to the screen and to read subtitles at the same time it just it takes more of my attention and i notice people make jokes about that all the time but it's actually really hard and i watch anime when i watch anime i focus on the an like i have to focus really hard if it's if i'm not if i'm watching it in japanese um so when it comes to my film criticism foreign film is a huge like um, block for me so when people mention foreign film they'll be like oh you were talking about this well have you thought about this or the film that you're talking about could be compared to this i like to listen because i know that it's something that i don't know and i know why i don't know about it you know yeah that makes me wonder um are you familiar with like kind of 90s american cinema like um made by black filmmakers like chameleon street and uh, Watermelon Woman. I've seen Watermelon Woman, and I really like Watermelon Woman. I actually made a video essay on it um, with with Kyle Calgren, my my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. um, but I've never seen um, Chameleon Street. No. Yeah, Chameleon Street's really good too. Um, and Daughters of the Dust, I think, is around that time as well. Yeah, yeah, I've seen Daughters of the Dust. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned that before. Um, and there's a couple more, and I don't want to waste more time like kind of looking for the titles but i was mm -hmm. i was thinking about um i was watching a movie that was like uh big in the 90s so there's like a lot of big white male american directors that i don't particularly like but they were kind of big like they were like you know part of like the indie boom not even tarantino but like you know kevin smith would be like the obvious one there's hal hartley um yeah, yeah. A ton of others. And I don't really particularly like them, but I like all of those movies that I just mentioned. And I was wondering, it's like, what would it be? And they're not really in the canon. And we're starting to talk about them now, which is great. But, like, those guys have been in the canon for so long, like decades, like the 90s. Wow, okay. Uh, a couple decades yeah, at this they point. Have been, they have been in the, I have seen every Kevin Smith movie. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, same here. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I wonder, like, what what that would have been like if, and I find those movies, first of all, I think they hold up a lot better than some of the other ones um, that I mentioned or, like, some of the other directors' work. Um, yeah. And what would, it, what, that have, what would that have been like if that was, like, was part of the canon from the get-go? And, you know, what if they had made more movies after that and so on? Um I don't know. There is a tendency of the canon to not focus on those things. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, a lot of my film education did not really. I mean, I was lucky enough when I was at NYU to study under Donald Bogle, who is pretty widely known as like a scholar of the depiction of black people in cinema and television and I, I was lucky enough to get him but he was you know that was one class um um of course I was able to buy his book and stuff like that but yeah it was in my in in the in the video for the watermelon woman that I did I mentioned that I heard about the watermelon woman a long time ago and then I basically spent years trying to track it down and it wasn't really until the criterion picked it up that I was even able to watch it um and yeah um it's a thing because i it's and it's still one of those things where i mean especially with um 
female directors of color, they didn't really get a lot of the shine that, you know, like Spike Lee and John Singleton did. They didn't get the funding. Um, and they didn't get the attention. <laughs> they still don't, um, <laughs> in my opinion. But yeah, because I mean, there's also like just another girl on the IRT, which... Yeah, I haven't seen that. I really want to. Yeah, it's good. It's good. They showed it at Alamo Draft House recently. Oh, cool. Um, but it would have been... It definitely would have been different. I mean, I, I try not to have like too much nostalgia for what it could have been and just try to talk about those films now and try to keep my focus now on that kind of stuff. And I focus a lot when I... I just do, like, independent study. I try to watch a lot of films directed by women from around that time and, of course, before, just in my spare time, just so I can know what it was. Like, even stuff that I've heard notoriously is bad, I'll still watch it. Because I just want to know what was going on you know, during that time while I was watching Whit Stillman and Kevin Smith and um, Tarantino and... Uh, Noah Baumbach, you know. Mm-hmm. And I still watch all of them. Well, and not Tarantino. But um, <laughs> I still watch, like, Noah Baumbach and, you know, love him and stuff like that. But, you know. Do you look up to certain writers? Do you, like, aspire to oh, be yeah. that? Or, like, who influences you in that way? I'm kind of influenced by a lot of writers now. I feel like I have a responsibility to read some of the older critics, but I get really inspired by reading people now. I read, uh, I read Alison Wilmore who writes for Buzzfeed. I love her. Um, Angelica Jade who writes for Vulture. I adore her. I'll just like sit down with Angelica Jade's work. Um, uh, Richard Brody at the New Yorker. I love him. I disagree with him a lot, but I love reading him. I love reading Doreen St. Felix also at the New Yorker doesn't write about film all the time. She writes about just like culture in general, but I love her writing style. Yeah, I guess I get inspired by a lot of people that are writing right now. I kind of like read their work and I I want to be able to express myself that that clearly you know and when you write about film how does that what is that process like are you taking notes during the film like can you take me through how you do it yeah i am a moleskin collector i take my moleskin to the movie theater with me and my pens (laughs) i'm very specific about my pens i like the um god what is this i like the i like the uniball pens um and yeah i take notes during the movie um and then sometimes i'll transcribe those notes i'm not as quick with my transcription as i should be i really should transcribe them as soon as i leave the movie but i usually go get a drink and chat and then i don't and um but yeah and then i take those notes and i try to create an outline a kind of like sloppy outline of what i want and some key quotes and things that I things that I want to convey and the way that the film makes me feel. I try to keep in mind the way the film makes me feel because when I get lost in my writing, it's usually because I forget. I I because the way that the film makes me feel is my through line. So if I forget that, then I don't know what I'm doing. Um and then I usually write in several different word processors. I usually um, start in Scrivener, and then I end up in Google Docs. But Scrivener is kind of like where I hang out and kind of like suss things out and be like, how does this paragraph sound? How does this sound? And then when I'm ready to get ready to file it and send it in, Google Docs. I also change fonts a lot. <laughs> To, I guess, maybe get a different perspective on it? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you feel? do you feel like you sit with it so much that you can't really see what's wrong with it or anything? No, I mean, I think what I usually do is, uh, like, a lot of my preparation kind of makes me 
my my issue is that I get really anxious and that I am like just like, oh, I suck, I suck, this sucks. Uh, and then I kind of like waste a lot of time. But during the time that I'm anxious, I'm also doing research and doing stuff, so I try not to make it completely useless time. Uh, but no, I don't really. I usually, it sucks because I usually find clarity at the last second and I just wish it was just like a second earlier. Um, but yeah, usually, yeah, my, my, my worst enemy with writing is just my anxiety and it always ends up fine. So my, so every single time I would think that it would like teach my brain, oh, this anxiety is actually really like counterproductive, but yeah. When I used to write and one of the big reasons why I quit is that I felt like it just sapped so much time and energy from me um like how long does it take you uh i know it's probably like different depending on the movie but in general how long does it take you to kind of from start to finish write something i've started turning out drafts to editors within a week and i'm trying to be way faster with a piece that i just recently wrote a piece of on black christmas for thrillist and I wrote that in three days. And I think that that's the fastest that I've done it. And I know that I need to be aiming at that fast or faster. But it's but it's definitely tough. And it's very weird because I wrote it. Um, there was a Halloween party the day before it was for my piece on Black Christmas was due. And I was just like, okay. Am I going to stay here and I'm going to sit at my desk or am I going to go to this party? And I essentially decided to go to the party. And actually, the party um, gave me the calmness that I needed to write it. And so I actually started, got very close to finishing it at the party. And then I came home and I really finished it. And it was really weird. And I kind of hope that it's a weird thing that happens more often. <laughs> you mean you like pieced it together in your head while at the party? No, I mean that I had Google Docs on my phone and I wrote it, I wrote paragraphs of it at the party. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, no, I think that's important because it's like, I feel like a lot of writers, no matter what they're writing, it's always just like staring at a blank screen or whatever, you know, and they're in the room, they're kind of fooling around. But, um, you know, get out. It helps. You know, different environments and different... Uh, mind spaces and stuff like that. It all absolutely helps. Yeah. That's really interesting, though, that happened. And also, the movie, Black Christmas, it turns out that barely anyone at the party had seen it, so by explaining the movie to a bunch of people at the party, I figured out how to write about it better. Oh, that's cool. So, okay, we'll start winding down. Um, okay. I wanted to to talk about this question and I don't want to sound like um, a dick when I say it because uh, I don't want to sound like we're better than everybody else. Um, okay. But it is something I wanted to talk about because I feel like it happens to me often. So it's like when you talk to people and they're like, Oh, you're into movies and you're like, okay, yeah. But you know, they're not like super cinephile or whatever. And they're like, well, yeah. what are your favorite movies? And you're like, Oh God. Um, I don't know what to say because I don't want to like, I don't want to say a bunch of movies and they're like, oh, I never heard of that. I never heard of that. Not because like, oh, my taste is so obscure and I'm so cool, but it's like, you know, I, I would like to talk to this person. Right. Yeah. I mean, you want to, you want to say things that create a conversation where you're back and forth, where you're not just like explaining a thing to someone. Cause that's not always fun unless that's something that, you know, you really enjoy explaining things to people. Um, yeah, I never know what to say when people ask me what my favorite movie is, because it's always a surprising answer to someone, and I basically just change it based on who asks, and I don't really, because I don't really have an answer. <laughs> I, I don't know, the idea of having a favorite movie, I mean, there are movies that I have a great respect for. There are movies that I love watching. There are movies that I think are great. And I don't know, they don't always intersect. Always, you know? I mean, they're the ones that I... and I, I can never figure out how to gauge favorite. Is it the one that I think about the most? Is it the one that I quote the most? Yeah. You know? 
I don't know. Like, if it was if it was based on, do you have a poster, then it would be Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom is the only movie poster that I own, though. So, it's yeah. just that I only felt compelled to buy that one. <laughs> but I was also, like, really emotional about Moonrise Kingdom when I bought that poster. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, tastes change, too, like, over time. Where it's just, like, I find myself at a spot where I was, like, oh, I used to love all of these, like, 80s and 90s movies that I grew up watching. And then I look back, I, like, watch them now, and, uh, like, a lot of them are, like, fucked up. And I'm like, ooh, I don't, I feel really weird about this, and I can't, like, the love is not there anymore. I'm not comfortable, like, watching uh, 16 Candles, you know, uh, stuff yeah, like that. when he started talking, I thought he's going to say 16 Candles. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, like, the most obvious <laughs> one where it's like, oh, fuck. Yeah, I, well, I, you know, my boyfriend didn't really grow up on any of the John Hughes movies, for some reason, even though he's, like, older than me, and I think it's weird. Um, <laughs> he, so I, so, like, during, like, the first year of our relationship, I showed him a bunch of John Hughes movies that I loved, and he, like, hated almost all of them, because <laughs> he was just like, this is, this is fucked up, and I was like, and I, and I basically told him, well, you know, I grew up with these, I a lot of affection for these and they you know created part of my comedy perspective and all of this stuff and that's some that's stuff that I can't get rid of I'm aware of the things that are wrong but I guess I don't I guess I kind of live in them now I kind of like live in weird science so I can so somebody can be like oh weird science is terrible and it's sexist it's like I knew I mean I think I knew that it was sexist when I was a kid before I knew what the word meant but I still was just like I don't know these guys seem okay (laughs) is what I thought I was like (laughs) it's definitely it I definitely have more complicated feelings about them than I did when I was like young and just hanging around in the house on a weekend and they were like all on tbs or something and this happened yeah, like every TBS week will, tbs will train you to like <laughs> if they put it on long enough yeah yeah um but it's interesting you know like i don't hate 16 candles but now like there are certain obvious parts at it where i'm like oh geez why yeah there's a lot of things to like about 16 candles um, and then there are the boys. Yeah. The boys are really just wall-to-wall a mess. <laughs> yeah, the boys are bad in that one. It's funny, too, this is not the first time 16 Candles has come up in this podcast. Uh, and for the same exact reasons, too. Where it's just like, oh, fuck, it really was that bad, huh? Yeah! I... It's very hard, because, I mean, it also comes from a time when... Uh, there was this idea that nerds were entitled to things because of how they were treated, which I still think is a really interesting thing to look into because the nerds who were raised on those movies are the nerds who are currently causing the most havoc on the internet. (laughs) So I think that it's worth it to really look into you know, from a theoretical perspective as to how how we got here. So I respect them in that way. <laughs> but I'm also I don't know. I can I can separate things. I mean, there are things uh, there are rough things. Like I did we did um on Bad Romance, we did an 80s movie that I had never seen before called Once Bitten where there's like this oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's this Michael like old man. vampire who needs the blood of a virgin, and that virgin is Jim Carrey. And uh, by and large, we were we were like, this is like an '80s gem. Like, I'm kind of wish that more people knew about it. But there's also a really terrible homophobic scene in the middle of it, and there's also a scene where this white guy does an Indian accent for no reason, and it just like a whole scene and then you never see him again and it's just those two scenes really change <laughs> it really changed it's just so like so it's it was a weird thing because at the end of the podcast we were like can we say watch this or 
That's really weird. I don't remember either of those two, but like when you when you bring them up, it makes me feel like, you know, the bigger question is like how much of that is ingrained in me and like the other people who grew up with this, where like we don't remember it, but it's in there, you know. When I mentioned the guy doing the Indian accent, she had completely missed it, Mm -hmm. and I was like, no. So it's almost just like, I don't know if it's something that people, you know, expect or like socialize to expect. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it in years. Um, but yeah, then it makes me think of how many people said like, okay, to that scene. And it's just like, what were you thinking about? Like, what was the mindset? I just also a very fascinating thing to kind of like mull over where it's like, what were you doing? Like, why was this a thing? Just random. Like, where did it come from? Like, why is it in this vampire comedy? Where did did Anthony Michael Hall's bluesy black voice come from? Yeah. Which is in almost every one of those movies. Yes! That was, like, a full interview. Like, I need him to explain because I didn't... And I didn't even realize. I think when I was younger, I thought it was, like, complimentary. Like, he likes black people. And when I grew up and I was like, oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah, because he does it in Weird Science when he's at the bar. He does, yeah, and he does it when they get high yeah. in the breakfast club. He does it when he's stoned, and it's just like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really weird. Yeah, because if you would have asked me, like, a few, like, if I was, like, young, I'd be like, oh, my favorite movie is The Breakfast Club. Watch it all the time. Um, <laughs> at the moment, though, to uh, end on a very positive note, at the moment, the movie that I'm obsessed with is Jane Campion's In the Cut, and it's a movie that I am constantly wedging into conversations where no one was talking about it. <laughs> okay, I haven't seen that. And part of the reason why I love In the Cut so much is because it's one of those, oh, Jane Campion made a bad one, and I'd always just heard my entire life that In the Cut was a bad movie because guy film critics... And Cinefaust told me told me so, and then I went to go see it at Quad Cinema, and I was blown away. I loved it. I think it's one of Meg Ryan's best performances. I think that it's fucking great. I love In the Cut, so my crusade is to make everyone appreciate In the Cut. That's one of my ongoing crusades, because I think it's great. I think it's great, and it should have brought back Meg Ryan's career, and I'm very mad that it wasn't, and this is, like, the one white woman that, like, I will fight to the death for. In the Cut was really good! (laughs) It really was! (laughs) Yeah, I haven't seen that. But, uh, I would totally watch it. Um... Yeah. And I haven't seen the I haven't seen actually a lot of her movies, but I guess a year or two ago I watched An Angel at My Table. Have you seen that? I've seen parts of it. I haven't seen all of it. Yeah, I loved that movie. I thought it was amazing. Um it was up your alley. Yeah. Um But yeah, once I saw that I was just like and I I had seen Top of the Lake. Um but nothing really before that. I saw Sweetie, which I I liked enough, but um, yeah. Yeah, Angel blew me away. But yeah, I I grew, I loved I love the piano. I love in the cut. I love Bright Star. Um, I think that Jane Campion's really interesting. <laughs> I think she's a really interesting director. Yeah, I mean that movie Angel made me want to uh, seek out more, and I was just like, you know. Whatever, it's, like, added to the list, but, like, now that you've put in the cut in the forefront of my mind, it's going to happen, I think. I adore it. I hope. Yeah. yeah. No, I never hear anything about that movie. Piano I hear, like, so much about, but I don't hear about in the cut. Yeah, all I heard was that it was bad and that it it killed Meg Ryan's career. And Mm -hmm. then I watched it and I was just like, no, it's not. Yeah. That's such a that's such a good feeling though when you hear something is like terrible and then you're like this is amazing. This is so cool. And like you're kind of it feels like you're rediscovering it being like they're all wrong. You know, when you find like yeah, this amazing I thing. Yeah, I watched um Belly a couple months ago. Oh yeah, people love Belly. I love Belly. But I heard it was bad, you know. <laughs> so Yeah, well, that depends on who you talk to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had always I'd grown up hearing great things about Belly. 
Yeah. I can see why someone wouldn't like it, but I don't know. I, I really loved it. Um, That's good. I should. I haven't watched it since I was a kid, so I'd love to watch it again. It used to play on BET, and it was one of those... BET used to play a bunch of movies over and over again. It used to play like Love and Basketball and Baby Boy and Belly and other stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, um, it was on Amazon Prime. I don't know if it still is um, or if you even have Amazon Prime. But uh, if you do, yeah, yeah. it's streaming. Um, check it out. You check out Belly. I'll check out In the Cut. Um, so, yeah, okay. Well, I've kept you long enough. But is there anything you want people to know or, like, what should they check out? I write about film and television for Bitch Media. I'm, a, I'm like, a continuing contributor, so watch out for that stuff. I wrote, as a fellow, I wrote, I wrote six pieces online, and I recently wrote a piece on Big Mouth. Um, so that's my seventh piece. That's my first piece as a non-fellow, and I'm working on more essays for them. I'm going to be in their print issue, um, the bitch magazine, uh, print issue, um, the pleasure issue at the beginning of 2019. I'm going to have an essay about, um, uh, women experiencing pleasure on screen, having orgasms, um, getting eaten out on screen. So that's going to be my first like print in a magazine piece. I'm very excited, so definitely pick that up. Bad Romance Podcast, you can listen to it on Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, everywhere. And we do a new episode every week, and they usually drop on Monday. The next one is going to be While You Were Sleeping, which I need to finish editing, and then I'll be, then it'll be ready. Yeah, I think it's almost ready. Um, the episode that was this week, what was this week? It was, a uh, was it High Spirits or what? We did a bunch of Halloween episodes. We did Bewitched, we did High Spirits, we did One Spin. We, we've got some stuff on the pipeline and we're going to be doing a live show in February. Really excited about that. And um, if you live in New York, I also do stand-up comedy and uh, I have a show. The next one is November 11th at QED Astoria, and then there's going to be another show on December 9th, also at QED Astoria, and the show's called Madams of the Universe, and it's a comedy show where I do not book male comedians, so it'll be good. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you for chatting, coming on the show. It's been great. It's been real. Yeah, it is. Bye. Stop recording.